Drama over the IRS is now mostly confined to Congress. The agency has returned more or less to normal, dealing with the day-to-day complexities of taxes. The National Taxpayer Advocate Service has also been dealing with vexing, if not existential, issues. We talk about a few of them right now with the National Taxpayer Advocate herself, Erin Collins. Ms. Collins, good to have you back. Tom, always good to chat with you. And one of those vexing, day-to-day, plain, old-fashioned tax administration issues concerns this 1099-K form. This is a form that was, is it new? Is it revised? And I guess a lot of people don't understand what they're supposed to do with it. And the uh, Taxpayer Advocate Service is jumping in here. So the challenge is Congress changed the law about a year ago. And I think a lot of small companies and individuals were not really impacted because the law required that third-party companies such as the Venmo, uh, the Cash App, uh, PayPal, that they would file these forms, but the amount was for $20,000 or more, or you had more than 600 transactions. So most of the individuals that use the Venmos of the world did not meet that requirement. But the law was changed to drop that down to one transaction of $600 or more. So needless to say, I suspect millions of taxpayers are now going to fall into that bucket. So that's a real challenge. Last year, the IRS postponed the reporting date. Right now, it is scheduled to start in 2024. So if you are an individual and you're using, again, we'll use Venmo for purposes of discussion. Venmo, for example, you and I have lunch once a month, and I want to use my credit card so I can get my points. And so you reimburse me through Venmo, and by year-end, we have more than $600 of charges. I will then get a 1099-K from Venmo for what is not a taxable event. So that's a real challenge for folks is we need to make sure that the consumers slash the taxpayers are correctly reporting those transactions to Venmo so that Venmo does not then issue a 1099-K for personal use. So that's a real challenge for taxpayers right now is during the year being proactive to make sure that they aren't reporting personal on those types of accounts. So Venmo and others have come out and said maybe you should consider having two separate accounts, one for personal and one for business, so that you do not cause that particular issue. And then the IRS has indicated that if you do get a 1099-K when it was for personal, not for goods or services, that you should reach back out to the issuer to ask them to reissue it. I don't want to be negative, but I think if next year comes January, February, March, millions of people reach out to Venmo and say, please reissue my 1099-K, it's not going to be a quick process. So the IRS has guidance out there as to what you should do if you get the 1099-K, how you can report it, and in essence, back it off the return so you don't have a mismatch with your 1099-K. So there's going to be a lot of confusion and I suspect a lot of errors that are going to be made on this particular issue. If an individual is paying, say, a personal services provider, say, I don't know, a gym trainer, an individual that accepts Venmo, your payment to that person would not be what triggers the 1099-K, or would it? That person receiving it, to that person, it's income, so they would have to report it anyway. Yeah, so in your example, only the one receiving the payment, so the person providing the gym services, and that should be taxable. So that would be appropriate use of the 1099-K. It would report, hypothetically, you paid them $50 for that service. 
that should be taxable by that individual. So that is a proper transaction versus if you and I, as I gave the example earlier, have lunch, that should not be taxable to me because you are just reimbursing me for your portion of the lunch. That's where the challenge is going to come in is I think a lot of individuals who are paying, for example, we're seeing people help their children and they're sending them money at college. You know, here's money to pay your rent or here's money to pay your food this month. That child potentially is going to get a 1099K if it's not done correctly. So that's a real challenge. I don't think we want millions of people having these 1099Ks for non-taxable events. Right. So you have to make sure that you classify and do the Venmo or whatever it is transaction correctly so that you don't invoke one for these kinds of things. Right. So some of the applications indicate you can put for purchase, which again, then the recipient would potentially get a 1099K versus personal. I think the safest way is to have a personal account that everything is personal and you set it up with the Venmo company that this is for personal use versus a business account. So that is one way to do it. I know a lot of practitioners have given advice that if you do receive a 1099K next year and it's for personal, that depending on if it's personal versus a hobby versus investment, there are different ways you can report it on the return. So our hypothetical example of we like to have nice lunches, you pay me $1,000 for the year, I would then report the $1,000 but back it off and indicate on my tax return that was for personal and it was not for goods and services, and then I would zero it out. And that way my tax return would match the IRS's records of the 1099K. We're speaking with national taxpayer advocate Aaron Collins This sounds like one of those cases where Congress does something and the IRS not only gets the work, but also gets a lot of the ire because of it. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a lot of questions when those 1099Ks are issued that individuals, the consumer or the taxpayer, is going to be asking, what do I do with this? And not understanding the consequences of either ignoring it if they think, hey, it's just personal and therefore not taxable, Or if they report it, do they understand how they can back it off the return so they're not paying on tax for something that's personal? So this could cascade to the call centers, to the inbound mail and email queries, and therefore cause another possible logjam like they had during, you know, the bad years of the pandemic. Yeah, that is a concern that we need to get the message out as soon as possible so that people that are filing those returns do it appropriately So they don't have to deal with the consequences, and the IRS isn't overwhelmed by the increased calls or, as you said, the paper coming in the door. And that whole discussion of workloads and inbound mail comes to the topic of staffing at the IRS. Now, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration has issued a report saying that the IRS needs to do a better job of using special incentives to get bodies in for those critical jobs. And you've had a lot to say about that, too, over at TAS. Yeah, I think the first year I arrived here in 2020, as part of our annual report to Congress, we made it our number one most serious problem for taxpayers, because if the IRS cannot hire and retain good employees, that impacts taxpayer service. So like TIGDA, we very much support the IRS using the special payment incentives, you know, to get the right folks into the door. You know, hiring, in my opinion, provides both an opportunity and a challenge. You know, every IRS employee is important to, you know, the mission. But at the same time, 
some of the positions that we have and the skill sets that we have are mission critical. And as the IRS, in essence, rebuilds and really focuses on its IT and other functions, we need to try and attract those folks from the outside that have a unique skill set that we need for mission critical work. So the special payment incentive is a great way to encourage some of those folks to want to come in and provide public service to kind of give them that extra incentive to come in the door. And these are not gigantic payments. These are not $100,000 types of bonuses. It's, in the grand scheme of things, not big money, fair to say. Yeah, it's, it's an extra incentive. Uh, usually it's somewhere in, you know, anywhere from 5 10 or 15% of the potential salary for a particular year. So again, it's, it's not the large dollars. I think most people that come in to an organization like the IRS, a, a federal agency, It really is because they are inclined to look towards public service. Um, I like to think that our IRS TAS employees, you know, they're here to make a difference in the lives of taxpayers, and they're here to improve tax administration and service. A lot of our folks are not here, you know, similar to the outside for the larger dollars. They're here to make a difference. But having that additional or compensation is important to get the right people in the door. So I'm a big proponent of trying to equalize both the public with the private sector and whatever we can do to help get the right people in the door and also retain our folks. And I said at the outset, that was my thought, that the IRS has more or less reached equilibrium compared to the stormy last couple of years. I should ask if that's your assessment and what you are going to be looking at you know, as another tax season approaches. We're still a few months away. We've got a budget cycle to complete between now and then, and that affects everybody. I said in my June report to Congress that the filing season this year was night and day from the filing season in the previous year. I'm not sure I'm as rosy as you are as we've reached the equilibrium from pre-COVID years. We have made substantial progress in the filing season, but the IRS still has a long way to go in order to get to what I would call the quality service that taxpayers are entitled to. And since you and I last spoke, we have a new commissioner for the IRS. Danny Werfel has been in there. Are you in touch with him regularly? Because I think he understands these issues from what I know of him and that these are high priorities there, too. Yeah, as a national taxpayer advocate, I have the honor of being a direct report to the commissioner. So I have the opportunity to chat with him on a regular basis, involved in many meetings with the commissioner and others. I do think that, you know, he's come in in a very interesting time. And also it's a great opportunity because Congress has given the IRS additional funding. I think there's a challenge of we want to make sure that we don't lose any more funding because we need to be transformational. We need to have the IRS be a different organization than it was last year or the previous years. And you know that unfortunately takes funds as well as having good employees. So I think he very much understands the challenges that he's facing and the challenges that the agency is facing, but he's been a pleasure to work with. And as I said, we, we have a big task ahead and I think we have our eyes open wide, but we do realize things are getting better, but we got a long way to go. And just an unrelated question on something I just learned recently is that there are somewhere around 150 people in federal agencies called the ombudsman, or now they call them ombuds, so they're, I guess, neutral word, and that the National Taxpayer Advocate, the Taxpayer Advocate Service, has been part of that community 
because in a sense you are a ombud for millions and millions of taxpayers. And what's going on in that particular community? And is this something that's growing, stable, or what do ombuds talk about? Yeah, <laughs> you make it sound like it's a, a joke at a bar. What do they talk about? So basically the agency was created back in, I believe it was 1996, and TAS has been lucky enough to be involved since inception. And it really is a way that the federal agencies, the umbuns, get together to talk about basically best practices. Aaron Collins is the National Taxpayer Advocate. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with links to some of her recent reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. File for the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. 
It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice, you can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it 
it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.